0: suncast is brought to you by sungrow providing clean power for all suncast is also brought to you by trina solar i
1: said why don't you just call it Brightbox? we have bright and everything else and he just kind of took that and ran with it and then the next thing i saw a few weeks later we're launching Brightbox. And i'm like
0: oh cool that's, that's great <laughs> hey there solar warriors i'm nico johnson and this is suncast each week I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. It's another Thursday and I'm honored that you're joining me this week, for our entrepreneur's story, and it's a doozy. Did you ever wonder how ideas like the Sunrun Bright Box storage product and program got their start? Well, today's entrepreneur and solar OG, Paul Daly, has had a hand in that bright idea and more in his more than two decade career in the solar coaster. We're going to dig into his journey to get to director of product strategy at Outback, some of the twists and turns along the way, and the carefully curated and practical steps that he took to craft his role in this booming market, as well as how he has scaled up from the world of solar to distribution to energy storage broadly. Committed listeners, of course, will recall that we just had Paul on last week for a tactical Tuesday on storage trends. I think that's an episode not to be missed. So if you did miss it, I hope you'll bookmark it for later as well. If you love this episode, then you should check out the more than 275 additional founders stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com and sign up to receive a notification when the next episode or additional magical goodie has dropped in your favor. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation with Paul Daly here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors. Today, we're going to jump into a conversation with recent alum Paul Daly of Outback Power. Perhaps you caught the Tactical Tuesday episode that Paul and I did, diving into his 10 predictions for solar and storage in the 2020s. Today, we're going to dive into his career of the last 20 plus years. It is my pleasure to spend some time again with Paul. Paul, welcome back to SunCast.
1: Thanks, Nico. I uh, really enjoyed the last one and uh, look forward to a fun conversation.
0: Indeed, indeed. For those who are unfamiliar, Paul has spent his 20 plus year career developing, marketing and deploying distributed generation technologies. We're going to talk a bit about how that got going and how he found himself as an entrepreneur in our industry. Uh, but he's been always focused on homes and businesses getting better control over how and where and their energy comes from and how they use it. It's such an interesting background, Paul. So I'm interested to, to dive into the winding path that has led you to Outback. But for those who maybe don't know you, haven't looked at your LinkedIn, can you give us a sense of how and why you maybe discovered or found yourself in the world of energy and how that became clean energy? And you kind of figured out this is where you wanted to focus on your career.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I was in high school, I went to high school in Eastern Washington. And uh, the local school district had a fairly unique program that placed uh, seniors in internship positions out at the uh, the Hanford site, and so um, I was placed uh, in the nuclear plant as part of the uh, the what's called regulatory services, right? So the the NRC kind of guys, and my job was to run around and and get my my friends' parents to sign off on on documents that you know change the the safety analysis documentation for the plant. And, you know, just looking around, here's this, here's this plant it's a gigawatt and change and there's a thousand, 2000 people there. You know, you had three buildings and they're all full most of the time. And you have these guys going in and out of the power block. You know, I was driving uh, to Portland one time and I, I decided to detour and, and go get the, get the dam tour at Bonneville. And, you know, here I go to walk in Bonneville dam. It's about half of the capacity of the nuclear plant. But there's like 50 people running the whole thing. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, this is my 18-year-old you know, self. I'm going, what the hell are we doing over there? <laughs> this is a way more economical way uh, to generate power. And, you know, you don't have a gazillion safety people and all this kind of stuff that you need, you know, when you're dealing with something like nuclear energy. That kind of got the wheels turning. I, I hadn't decided yet to do energy as a career. You know, I, I at that time still plan to go into uh, robotics. And so I spent a lot of my time in college researching, you know, robotics and things like that, but very tangential. I mean, energy was, was kind of part of what you learned. And then when I graduated, I was offered a really compelling position at uh, Infinia, which at the time was called Sterling Technology Company. And, you know, I was a R&D engineer building Sterling engines, which is kind of a dream job for a graduating engineer. Uh, and so I, my very first project was working on a DOE grant to generate power from uh, wood pellets. Right, so we have the Stirling engine, which is a heat engine. For those that aren't familiar, Stirling is a, is an external combustion engine. So you burn something, uh, or you get some heat source, and you heat up one end, and you cool the other end, and then you get you know mechanical energy or, or, in our case, power out the other end. And so I spent a lot of time with gasifiers and all these you know crazy biomass things, and uh, dug into the whole you know manure allure poo power realm of the world before we eventually made the business decision to shift into solar. And so that kind of launched you know, my interest in solar, and, and it kind of went from there.
0: Yeah, you said before in a previous call that your role was aligning grants with commercial destination of products. I've never heard anybody say it quite like that. Could you help me understand, as a product guy, how you kind of came to that conclusion that that was your job at Invenia?
1: You know, I was tapped fairly early on as, you know, the guy writing the uh, the grants for the Small Business Innovation Research Program. And so this is a great program for anybody who's, who's starting out with any kind of technology business you can go online and all the different government agencies will have a set aside for small business research and you can go and apply for these grants, assuming that whatever you're building is close enough to something they want to do. Now, the, the secret to this program is that you can't just go and like, look when the grants come out and then apply for something. I mean, you, you have to do that, but you have to start figuring out, okay, who are the principal investigators at these agencies? What are they really looking to accomplish? You need to call them, you know, and you have to call them outside of the grant area. You're not allowed to call them between the time the grant applications are are published and the time that you're, or assuming as the grant uh, solicitations are published and the time you get your application in. It you have to call them outside of that time. But you get a hold of these guys and you start talking to them about, well, here's what I can do for you. You know, here's what my technology can do for your agency and your mission. You know, so ours was pretty obvious. We had a lot of stuff with DOE. Uh, we had a lot of stuff with uh, NASA. And most interestingly, we we had a lot of uh, interactions with the National Institute for Science and Technology because we also made cryo coolers. And so, um, you know, those were the kinds of things, and then and then all the military ones, right? So we did a lot of work, you know, powering UA, UUVs, so unmanned underwater vehicles. One of my favorite was a, a field kitchen that that made power while it boiled potatoes. If you talk to these guys ahead of time, they'll coach you, and then and you can kind of influence them to say. Hey, you know, if, if you put out a solicitation that's asking for this, then, you know, my technology or my company can really help here. And they'll put the solicitation out. Now, they can't automatically award it to you. It's competitive. But, you know, if you're if you're clear about what you can do and what they need and have that conversation, well, it's going to come out and it's going to be as tailored for you as possible uh, so that you you should have an advantage in, in responding to it. And so, you know, we had this, this kind of successful program where we were doing all this stuff. I, I had a pretty good track record. I was winning about one out of three of these things, which, you know, in that industry was, was considered, uh, you know, pretty darn good. And then, you know, we, we, uh, we got a new CEO in who wanted to take much more strategic uh, approach to this. And he said, he said, we're only going to go after the grants that will lead to a product that we can commercialize and not depend on the government to, to pay for. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> And so, you know, we started getting much more focused, you know, we, we narrowed it down, you know, we, to our, our space power program and we started working on solar related stuff, you know, so you could take, because it's a heat engine, you could take a big parabolic dish and you could concentrate the, the sun energy, you know, on the Stirling engine and actually generate power that way. And this was back in like, you know, 2003, 2004, when, you know, you were putting in solar and it was still 10
0: bucks a, a kilo or a watt. And when everyone thought that concentrated solar was going to be the utility scale method.
1: Exactly. We were we were sort of right in there. The challenge was our building block was like one to three kilowatts, you know, so it wasn't the huge one. So we had a kind of a more of a commercial type type products. And and eventually, you know, going through all this stuff, I realized that, you know, PV was, was making strides much faster than the concentrating stuff was. And so I so yeah, I eventually jump shipped and went to uh, to Solar World, which was one of the bigger you know PV manufacturers at that time. You know having having just acquired the the Shell facility.
0: Just want to go back a little bit in in context and history for those who are unfamiliar. A lot of the cultural references, a lot of the even. Geographical ref- references for Paul might be foreign to those on the East Coast or certainly those outside the United States. So the Hanford site for many in the western region of the United States would automatically tell you that he's in Washington. And we can go into the, the context of the history of the Hanford site. I'll link to a Wikipedia page that will give you all the information of uh, that is actually quite riveting of how the Hanford nuclear reactor site was part of the Manhattan Project. It's where the vast majority of plutonium was manufactured in the United States for all of our arsenal and where the first nuclear bomb plutonium was, was created, et cetera. But in Washington, Washington has a long history in the solar industry of having a series of manufacturing sites that get passed from, uh, from hand to hand. And what you just recently mentioned was how SolarWorld acquired, Solar World, being a German manufacturer, it acquired a shell plant that itself uh, has its own history in the state of Washington of, um, of being a manufacturing site. So I think that's really, really interesting that you decided, was it like geographical coincidence or preference that you decided to go to solar world out of Infinia? Cause you want to stay there in Washington?
1: It was actually kind of the reverse. My, my wife wanted to be in California. And so the role that they offered me was at the Camarillo facility, which, you know, this is the, this is the plant that goes all the way back to like the Arco days.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say that's the Arco plant. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you see those 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 mo- like the modules that they gave to uh, Governor Brown recently. You know, those came mm-hmm. out of that plant. You know, that's so right. I, you know, I worked with the guys that made that stuff. Uh, so that was it. Was a really good time. It was actually a great entry point for solar PV because you know I'm working for Rajiv Gandhi, who's was literally there back in the '70s when they rolled the whole thing out. You know, he'd worked for Charlie Gay and some of the names that everyone knows. So that was you know it was great because I was around. I was surrounded by all these pioneers. Right. You know, I got to meet, you know, David Katz and Coley Judd and all the, you know, all the guys. And if you've seen Jeff Spies' film, like I got to meet most of those guys, you know, through that gig.
0: Through working, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and later on, you know, David Katz invited me to come to AE. Uh, and so then I was really in the thick of it.
0: Before we jump to AEE, the Solar World brand and heritage of Arca Solar and everything that was sort of came before it is one that has been, I'd say, in large part, forgotten by like the modern day solar uh, advocates who just see SolarWorld as the the company that filed a trade case. Looking at the time that you were there, it seems like you left either just before or right around the time the trade case came out. The trade case, of course, being one that was a, a tariff eventually imposed on Chinese cells uh, because SolarWorld that, said that or claimed that it was, um, it was unfair pricing and it was driving companies like SolarWorld and U.S. manufacturing out of business. I have a two-part question. One, you are a product engineer and a project engineer, but the role that you served at SolarWorld was that of a marketing manager. So through the lens, of, I'm, I'm curious how you were attracted to being a marketing manager from being a project engineer and being an engineering major, and then through the lens of a marketing manager whose job it is to create collateral, if you will, or spin or to communicate to the audience the message of a company. I'm curious your perspective of the solar world brand and trade case and all of that.
1: You know, I went to the mar- marketing role after getting my, my MBA, which uh, Infini had, had kindly allowed me to to do. Uh, they even you know paid for most of it. So I worked for them for another couple of years after that. And then I, you know, before I went to Solarworld solar world and, you know, for a number of years, I was the U S marketing guy, you know, so I, my initial task was, Hey, we just bought this shell plant. It's got this great heritage. We want to like, Try to bring that along to the new brand and, you know, had some kind of clever ads and things we did there it was it was pretty low budget uh, by today's standards. We had a few ads in like, you know, Solar Pro and, and Home Power magazines, you know, those kind of mostly print advertising and trade shows. You know, we we finally worked up to multimedia advertising uh, You know, toward the end of my time there. But, yeah, the trade case was interesting. Uh, you know, when I started, Solar World had a pretty commanding you know, market share in the U.S., and uh, a lot of really loyal installers and i think they never really lost that um there's still installers today that will tell you hey those were the best modules ever made and and so on and so forth and i think that reputation was was not unearned i mean they they spent a lot of time and and quality was very much a focus i mean it's a you know getting bought by the germans they had been siemens before you know it was, it was arco uh siemens and then shell you know so you know especially in the siemens days you had a lot of those quality programs you know, Siemens was the first company to offer a 25 year uh, module warranty, you know, because they they wanted to show how much they believed in the quality of the product. And throughout that time, you had a pretty similar set of leaders. You know, so like I said, Rajiv Amandra had been there the whole time. There were a couple of business lieutenants that had been there for most of that time. And so there was a lot more continuity than you might expect. So here we are. We're cranking away. Things are going great. And then it's 2009, 2010. I think it was right right at the beginning of 2010, you had all the Chinese module suppliers drop their prices almost in lockstep. I mean, they went down a dollar a watt, like within a week, all of them. And uh, and so we're scratching our heads going like, whoa, what happened? Their costs can't have come down that much. And so it's a really interesting situation because SolarWorld and other American manufacturers, you know, were and, and to a large extent still are being abused by you know, the, the Chinese market dominance uh, policies, you know, because you're talking about a an economy, you know, that, that operates as a single entity, right? You have China Inc. And, you know, while there's other names and other things out there, it really is, you know, China Inc. It was compounded by the fact that uh, Suntech and some others had stolen IP from uh, SolarWorld and other U.S. companies. You know, so it's like we tend to, in the industry, paint them as the bad guy because they made the price of modules go up. But, you know, and, and if you'll forgive the analogy, you know, it, it's, it's a bit be- like it's a bit like blaming the, the the cheerleader who got raped for the reason that your your star player couldn't go to the you know NFL game. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not her fault. <laughs> and so you had a lot of that. I mean, and it was that kind of feeling, right? It was like, hey, we're you know, we're being abused here. This is this has got to stop. And I think where the real arguments came in internally was was not, you know, no one thought that what was happening was right. But it was like what's going to be an effective solution. And I think there were, you know, there was a camp that said, look, I mean, yeah, this is unfair, but you know, there's something we can do about it. Or, you know, we have to find other ways to compete. And then there was a camp that said, oh no, we should, you know, we should go and and make some kind of legal case. And that largely came out of Germany. Uh, you know, so you had the leadership, you know, you had Frank Aspeck in charge and he's, you know, he's kind of, you know, wanting to be the Richard Branson of solar as it were, it was really a character. And and he he had very strong views on this, and he was very politically connected. And so you know you saw this kind of parallel effort in Europe and the U.S. to basically say, "Hey, look, we got to tell China to stop." And you know the result of that was, you know, what a, what a number of us had said it would be, is that yeah, you're you're just going to basically raise prices for anybody. It's it's not ultimately going to help us. That's largely what happened. I do think that in some small ways it has made the industry stronger. You know because it forced those tariffs forced. Uh, a lot of the supply chain to move out of China, which, you know, has helped in a lot of other cases, you know, as more tariffs get imposed and as we had, like with the pandemic, you know, the first uh, stages, you know, where you couldn't get anything out of China. Well, a lot of solar companies were actually, it was really good that they had a plant somewhere else, you know, maybe in Vietnam or Thailand or, or Singapore or where have you. These types of setbacks ultimately are what makes industries uh, stronger. And like I said, I, I didn't agree with the decision I I left before they actually you know, implemented any of that. At the same time, I don't think that they were wrong to do so. Uh, it's just simply, you know, they're, they're, that was the strategy they adopted and it ultimately didn't work, you know, which is unfortunate. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think we're materially worse off than we would have been otherwise.
0: It was a bit of the tail wagging the dog for a while. And uh, certainly having been at the time, Working for uh, other solar manufacturers, you know, got to see various angles of how it played out in in the macro environment of our industry. But agree, uh, Now nine years on, uh, eight years on, it has been largely forgotten in in lieu of other trade cases, frankly, and and in lieu of the fact that the industry uh, is just destined to uh, to be a majority of generation in you know globally. You know, there were a lot of different moving parts and pieces in, you know, the early 2010s, and it wasn't clear which sector of the industry was going to take off, right? Residential seemed to be growing well under the under the leadership of uh, some of the name, uh, sort of well-known brands like Sunrun and SolarCity and Sungevity even were um, gaining momentum, Vivint, et cetera. Utility looked like it might be poised to really take off from utility-scale development. And then there were all the other services that that sort of helped to provide a stable foundation for growth like distribution companies like aee and dc power now soligent and and many others that we could name in their heyday they were really really pumping you mentioned david katz had called you to AEE. i'd love to hear that story you were there if, if i recall correctly all the way through the sunrun acquisition correct i'm wondering if you have some fun anecdotes of the ways that AEE grew and changed over the time you were there and how the influence of Sunrun uh, even further sort of changed the face of what you saw as distribution in our industry.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. I was actually at the 2010 uh, Intersolar conference, you know, in San Francisco. We were uh, debuting our our ad campaign with Larry Hagman. So for those that remember, you know, we had the Shine Baby Shine uh, TV spots and everything. And and I had been you know part of organizing that. You know, so I'm at the trade show. I I literally hadn't slept in, in like three days and the guy who was, who was running, you know, sales at the time for solar world, you know, who was sort of like my boss's boss. Anyway, he, he was like giving me a bad time because I, I missed some dinner or something. And, and I'm just looking at him like what? <laughs> and then, you know, I'm, so I kind of like went for a walk to cool off a bit. And, and, you know, the first person I bumped into was, was, was David. And he, and he says, he says, Hey, I need some marketing help. You know, would you consider coming over here? And I, I just said, yeah, let's, let's talk. Nothing happened that day. It took another, you know, six to eight months before we got all the uh, details ironed out. But yeah, I mean, you know, the next the next spring I was over at AE and, uh, you know, move, moved up from, you know, I was in Camarillo, moved up to, uh, to San Luis Obispo, which is um, about the, the only better place you can go than Camarillo. AE had been through a lot. I mean, you know, David Katz himself had had bought and sold it like four different times. And so it had been kind of through the ringer. It's a very colorful organization. And, you know, I kind of came in at that really the beginning of the transition. And this is where I've often found myself in my career is, you know, helping to take a company from, you know, say 50, 60 employees and 10, 15 million dollars a year to you know, hundreds of employees and 50 to 100 million you know, or more in revenue. And this was, you know, this was kind of really one of those areas, you know, went there originally as, as a product manager. And was eventually uh, given leadership of the, uh, the technical support team, which, you know, at that, at that time at AE, I mean, it was really a legendary group, right? I had, I had uh, uh, Brad Bassett, Brian Teitelbaum on the team. Uh, we had, I think, uh, Barry Husby, who's, who's now at Snap and Rack. We had a lot of fun, right? Because here's, you know, here's a bunch of guys that really knew their stuff. I mean, you know, uh, Brian and Brad in particular had been in the industry for, you know, 30 years and more, you know, since it was an industry, Really knew all the ins and outs, and we're just you know great guys to work with. We even did our own podcast for a while called uh, Rooftops and Wrenches.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was one of the one of the original podcasts.
1: Yeah, it was sort of modeled after you know because at the time it was you know Energy Gang had taken off, and it was there was this kind of NPR vibe to all the solar podcasts, and so we modeled ours after Car Talk. <laughs> I love it, and it's uh, it, it went pretty well. I mean, I, we actually ran it until I until I left the company, but I think they still host the episodes, so you can still get them if you're curious. And it was just kind of a question and answer show with, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of fun, you know, interactions in the middle of it. You know, working with that team was really fantastic. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you know, Sunrun came along uh, and acquired all of Mainstream. So for those that that aren't aware, AE was part of a group called Mainstream Energy, which also owned REC residential and REC commercial. So our first hint of the acquisition was when Mainstream sold off REC commercial. They spun it out as, as its own company. Uh, I guess it sold to Duke a few months after that, but you know, we were just spinning it off and it was kind of like, well, wow, that's, that's odd. I wonder why we're doing that. And then those that were more on the REC, you know, residential side of the house kind of had a, had an inkling, you know, and because and so, they were actually Sunrun's, you know, biggest, you know, supplier partner at that time. And we didn't have a lot of direct interaction with Sunrun on the e side mm-hmm. until after the acquisition. What was interesting and, and and really helpful for us is, you know, you, you had a really, well-executed merger, and it was it was really the model for you know these kind of synergistic mergers because you had Sunrun, which at the time was really just a financing company. You know, so you had all these really smart people up in San Francisco that that knew how to get solar financed and you know knew how to market it and and really that that end of things. You know, and then you had on on the mainstream side, you had a bunch of people that were really good at supply chain, really good at construction, you know, really good at sort of the operations side of the business. They by and large left everybody in place as far as what they were leading. You know, some of the titles changed, but the responsibilities by and large didn't. And you know, they appointed a, a joint team to, to go and handle it all. Within about six months, I mean, everything was was functioning pretty darn well. I mean, it wasn't all done, but like you felt like you were all part of one big company now. And you know, AE increasingly became the supply chain backbone for for Sunrun, and we really worked to expand our relationship with Sunrun's other channel partners. You know, so even to this day, you know, a lot of people aren't aware, Sunrun doesn't do all of its own installs, right? It, it does maybe half of them. And then the rest are done by these channel partners, which are basically, you know, large regional installers that have a relationship with with Sunrun and, and agree to, uh, you know, to source jobs and then sell them uh, for the Sunrun financing. And so as a distribution company, you know, we were able to come in there and basically work with these guys and and... Some of the some of the transactions, I mean, like we couldn't just like give them equipment and then, you know, because you, you had to sell them the equipment, and you had to buy it back because otherwise the taxes and stuff didn't work out right. But we would work with them and, and like say, hey, these guys are big. They're credit worthy automatically because, you know, we're paying them. So if they don't pay us, we don't pay them, you know. <laughs> so you, you had kind of that thing going for it, which allowed us to be a lot more generous in, in, in terms and things than they could get anywhere else. And and again, you know, no one no one has to buy from AE who's doing business with Sunrun, but the idea was to make it really attractive to do so. And uh, and to a larger extent it worked pretty well. I mean, AE grew, just if you took just the distribution side of the business, grew quite a bit during that time. I haven't uh, I don't think they, re- they report AE out as a line item, so I haven't been able to follow it since then. But um, it's a growing part of the business. And you know, I was responsible for the catalog and for a lot of that kind of you know, what products go in and increasingly worked with the Sunrun team to determine what products they were going to use as part of that, you know, right after the acquisition, they had, you know, Lynn Jurek and, and Ed Fenster came down to, to San Luis Obispo to meet with some of us. And so they had, you know, kind of one-on-one conversations number of people. And, and I got to be in one of those. And, and I, I kind of made the case. I said, you know, look, we, we've got to be, we've got to be doing storage, right? It's, you know, and at the time, it was backup was the big thing, right? People want backup. We got to like have a way to do that. And and I and increasingly I said, you're going to have to have this eventually for financial reasons anyway. You know, just looking at what's happening with net metering, with the grid and all this kind of stuff, because it was all kind of just starting back then. And that's a drum I was beating for, for many years, even prior to that. They turned out to be really receptive to it. In fact, you know, Ed had been having conversations with, you know, shareholders and, and others prior to that meeting. And, and he said, yeah, you know. You know, well, well, how much you know, do we know about storage? And I said, well, I said AE, AE's been doing this since you know 1980 or, or earlier, and the the UL standard for grid connected uh, inverters was published in 1999. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like, okay, so so you know how this works? I'm like, yes, we know how this works. And that you know it didn't take long before you know I was tasked with you know going and you know negotiating the deal with Tesla and getting some of the stuff out you know with with the rest of the Sunrun supply chain team. It was a lot of fun. We uh, you know, we, we had a great time getting it, getting all getting all that figured
0: out and and uh, and launching it. Sounds like you were one of the early uh, Brightbox uh, in- initiators or catalysts inside of uh, the Sunrun team. That's that's really cool.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's funny. I was uh, is there. I got an email one day from from the corporate counsel. Uh, they wanted to name it Sunbox, and uh, and he said, "Well, there's a product of product." that i'm not I mean, i'm not sure about this if this is going to be a problem i'm looking at the other product and it's it's not offered in the u.s but it's like it's a batteries you know solar battery system much smaller i said why don't you just call it brightbox we have bright everything else and he just kind of took that and ran with it and then the next thing i saw a few weeks later we're launching brightbox and i'm like oh
0: cool that's, that's great you have a penchant <laughs> so, yeah you have a penchant for creating these moments in time where brands have a, a cornerstone marketing uh, angle or tactic that's pretty cool
1: i mean to me that's that's how i get to contribute right and Uh, you know, coming from, you know, a cog in the machine, as it were, you know, there are some ways to to influence those decisions and to build upon those strategies, you know, because business is ultimately about deploying a working strategy. And if you can, if you can come up with that working strategy, you know, people will follow it. No, it's not like there's, uh, or there shouldn't be any way, you know, based on whose idea it was, it should be based on how good the idea is. And in, in really well-functioning companies, you find that that's the case. And I think Sunrun is, is certainly an exemplar of we'll run with the best idea, regardless of where it came from.
0: Well, you know, we introduce you as the director of product and market strategy for Outback. Many in our industry understand who Outback Power is, and Outback has itself gone through, uh, as you mentioned, a similar phase of uh, of expansion and growth and acquisition. What led you to leave what was the fastest-growing solar company in the world to go? To a company that's kind of tried and true, Outback always has its niche in the market. Surely, I have to imagine that there's something attractive about Outback and where they were where they're looking to go that made them come to you and look for a new director of product management and made you say, huh, well, maybe this is something that would be, be worth me changing direction in my career right now. AE went from being, I, th- I
1: think, like nine or 10 on, on Outback's customer list. And during my tenure there, we really started to engage with Outback. I mean, it went both ways. You know, Brandon Provolenko, who was running, you know, Outback Sales at the time, <clears throat> you know, he made a point to come down and engage with with myself and others you know personally and really just kind of throw everything to the side and say, what's it going to take for us to dominate in this market through you? Finally, someone's listening, you know, because we had tried to have this conversation with SMA and they they weren't hearing it. And and none of the guys that were there at SMA at the time are, are still there in part, I think, because they didn't do that kind of listening. But, yeah, the Outback guys came down and they were just like, let's figure out just some creative ways to go after this. And we came up with a number of of joint activities. You know, we we started featuring them more at, at our. You know, and they took on a larger sponsorship role mm-hmm. for AE's you know, distributor conferences and these kinds of events. And you know, and I hit the road and did a bunch of training on you know why you should get into storage, right? Because for me, for a long time, it's been you've got to have energy storage to make all this work. You know, in the, in the long run, you know, I I tend to look at things if you know if everybody did X. Would it be a good thing or a bad thing, right? And if everybody did solar, it's only a good thing up to a point, right? There's a, there's a point where now you've got all this solar on the grid that is not dispatchable, that, you know, now you've you've got other problems. But if you put storage with it, you know, now everybody can do it and it's, and it's a net positive. And so, you are know, looking just from that very simplified perspective, you know, I said, okay, the storage nexus is coming, right? And it's just marching inextricably toward that. And so when you know Brandon called me up one day and said, "Hey, I've you know I need someone to run product management and get our next generation of products out there." Um, you know they were at the time getting getting Skybox pretty close to launch, and uh, you know want to come in and, and help them go from being a an off grid company to this broader energy management company because you know here's an outfit that really understood batteries, really understands you know power electronics, and understands what energy storage can do for customers. Uh, And so that was really what what attracted me uh, was, you know, opportunity to take more of a leadership role and to really drive that, you know, as a, uh, as a business angle. Uh, And so, you know, since then it's been about like, how do we get better at this? How do we get the next generation of products? And, you know, what I'm excited about now is, you know, the first products that are that really started under my watch, you know, are are coming to fruition here in the next uh, 12 months or so. And I think they're going to make make an impact. You know, now having uh, been acquired by by Intersys, which is a much much larger company even than Alpha was, who was you know the the original parent company of, of Outback. You know, we have a lot more resources around this now. We have uh, this giant battery company uh, behind us, and the the leadership there really sees the solution as we're going to sell solutions, we're going to sell systems, we're not going to sell you know, all these individual components and just you know wash our hands of it. We're going to offer. Here's a complete system that you can buy. You want to buy the components? Fine, we'll sell you the components. But we really, you know, we've got something here that'll make your life a lot easier. And, you know, I, I came to Outback to do that. You know, I think we're, we're definitely heading the right direction with it. And, you know, bumps in the road as always, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there.
0: I generally wonder how many people in the industry aren't familiar with Intersys as a company and why it was so important that, you know, the Outback, this really well-known and well-understood, uh, as you pointed off-grid company, um, for the most part. I mean, Outback has always had grid tie products, but the off-grid market has been where Outback has just dominated for decades. Um, Help me understand Intersys and why it made sense for Intersys to buy Outback, of the many, many companies they could have considered.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, you know, Intersys didn't acquire Outback by itself, right? Sure, they acquired acquired, Alpha,
0: correct. They acquired
1: Mm -hmm. Alpha, but they quite easily could have spun Outback off, right? or asked um, Alpha to do that, much in the way that the Sunrun had said, look, we don't want the commercial division. You need to spin that off before we acquire you.
0: For those who aren't familiar, I mean, Intersys bills itself as the global leader in stored energy solutions for industrial applications, right? Like that's that statement alone says a lot about where Intersys' focus has been and is. How old is the company?
1: So, Intersys, as Intersys has been around for, I don't know, 20 years and change, the origination of the company actually goes all the way back to Thomas Edison. This is this was a a series of of battery companies and then through different mergers and acquisitions is kind of now this very large, you know, battery conglomerate, if you will. You know, so you've heard like, you know, Odyssey batteries and trucks, you know, Hawker batteries for equipment, Um, you know, a lot of those brands. Right. They're actually interest brands. Uh, So you don't see them in the in the auto parts store. But, you know, there's a good chance that you're you know, your your battery battery your, your starter battery you're buying at an auto parts store is a white label Intersys battery, right? Because there's only so many companies that make uh, all those batteries. And of course, you know, Intersys now working on the next generation of battery technology. And the the good thing about it is you, you have a large multi-billion dollar company that's working on this stuff. And it can bring a lot in terms of making sure things are safe, making sure that you can back up the warranties, making sure that the quality is there. You know, these are things that the, the smaller startup companies just don't have the resources for. So that's where the real advantage of of an you know, comes in. And I think strategically, you know, when they looked at Outback, they they made a the conscious decision to keep it. And part of the reason was they said, hey, you know, here's a power electronics company that, you know, is you know, well established in the renewable space. You know, we've got the off-grid niche to work from. And that was where a lot of the, you know, alpha businesses and other, the Intersys was interested in also, you know, leverage that kind of off-grid space. You know, we're powering the world, right? So it's it's the power you need anytime, anywhere, you know, no matter what. And that's really what Intersys is all about. So Outpack is, is the renewables arm of that, if you will. And to some extent, even the residential arm of that. Uh, so, you know, there's really a play there now in terms of growth, we're looking at it saying, hey, we can come into this this grid tied energy management space now where, you know, we understand a lot more about energy storage than most of our competitors. You know, we should be able to come in here and, and carve out a pretty good share of the market for ourselves and 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 offer products that, that are really robust and yet economical at the same time. You know, and so that's kind of where the, the focus is is today is how do we how do we create a system where, you know, you're Your cost of energy is the lowest, whether you're getting it from the battery or from the grid or for whatever, and
0: we figure out how to make that happen. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX, load flexibility software? From extensible energy. You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift the usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white-label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Adani Solar USA, a fully integrated renewables company from solar sale and module manufacturing to project ownership and operation. Adani has an impressive operating and contracted pipeline of over 14 gigawatts of solar energy projects and recently received the largest solar award ever of 8 gigawatts. It's mind-blowing. And it includes a single-site project of 2 gigawatts, which itself is tied for the world's largest. No one knows mega-scale projects like Adani. If you'd like to work with Adani, go to mysuncast.com forward slash Adani, A-D-A-N-I, and fill out the information request form, and we'll put you in touch with their local team. You know, we're seeing this, uh, which we alluded to in, in detail about in the Tactical Tuesday, this move towards batteries as a grid asset. Uh, you know, many of your predictions sort of uh, allude to both uh, so the future of AC and DC coupling and, and the retrofit versus new build markets. How, within the context of Intersys, this huge storage uh, concern... Do you all see the world from the perspective that batteries are now a grid asset? Like, how do we complement this concept of off-grid versus grid tie and, as, a, as a go for it? Is more R&D being spent in battery chemistry or in software? or Where do you see that, uh, that impetus?
1: Yeah, I think we've, I mean, we've made a lot of investments in battery chemistry, you know, our interests individually and as an industry. And I think that the real, you know, next level of investment is, as you said, in, in the software. You know, how do we make these systems talk to each other? You know, I spend a lot of time with our engineering team and with organizations like SunSpec and others trying to make sure that, you know, as we launch all these virtual power plants and other kind of grid asset mobilization types of networks, that we're all speaking the same language, that, you know, the stuff can all talk to each other. You know, so we've we've kind of gone away from having this you know, proprietary communications to where you know going forward. everything SunSpec compliant. Uh, IEEE 23.5 compliant, you know, all the kind of basic industry standards that allow for intercommunication, right? So if you wanna have an Outback product here, maybe an SMA product over here or a SolarEdge product over there, there's a way we can all talk to each other and function on the same grid and provide uh, aggregated services. And so we're we're pushing for that type of, of uh, ecosystem. And then it's basically whoever builds the best equipment for the money wins. <laughs>
0: It seems like an oversimplification, whoever builds the best systems for the money, uh, when there are so many different flavors of system that the market says they need, right? As you pointed out, residential versus C&I versus uh, utility backup. I mean, storage is going to be integrated into our world in a way that solar could only hope to, (laughs) you know, in the same way that storage is integrated into our world already, the storage in my watch and the storage in my computer are not the same uh, fundamental technology, they're based on a similar chemistry, yeah, it's it's really interesting and complex uh, world that we're faced with right now. Where as an industry, we've been by and large hardware focused for fifty years, right? As we all know, software is eating the world uh, in every other uh, category. Software is the is the multiplier effect. So I, I'm be, I'm going to be really curious to see how software and energy products uh, continue to intermesh and intertwine. Do you guys offer? Uh, either now or moving the future products in other parts of the world, namely Latin America, where a bunch of our listeners are. But like where and how do you compete with, say, the Inphase and Solar Edges of the world or the, you know, even the, the straight uh, battery companies? I'm thinking like, you know, Generac bought Pica. Like where, where does Outback position itself in the market and, and how available outside of the main, the U.S. market are, is, are your products?
1: We're not as strong outside the North America as we are inside of it. But that said, we we do have a, a reasonably good presence in Latin America. And that's for you storage
0: know. and pro- power conversion?
1: Yeah, so mo- mostly power conversion just because of our legacy products. And we've made a number of, you know, deals with different battery companies over the years. Increasingly, though, now with, with Intersys, we're leveraging, you know, the Intersys batteries, which allows us to have a much more uniform offering uh, worldwide. Yeah, we've been really strong in the Caribbean for a long time. Uh, and it's really because if you have, say, you know, a half a grid as it were, you know, so let's say you're in Haiti or you're in some place where like that, where the grid is only on for so many hours a day. You know, we, we've done a lot of systems historically where you didn't even have to have solar. You would just charge the batteries from the grid while you had it, and then it would give you power at night. You know, that was actually a really major use case. uh, And I think even to this day in those kind of markets, increasingly, you know, as you put the solar on there, the solar is cheap enough now that why wouldn't you, and it allows you to go further. Uh, so if the grid doesn't come on the next day, for some reason, you know, you're okay. Cause you can still charge the batteries. And it's this idea that we can, we can connect to a grid. That's not very strong or a grid that has, you know, not a great, uh, waveform, you know, we take for granted in the U S and, and in Europe and, and other places where, you know, the grid conforms to a pretty solid standard. That's not the case in most of the world. So you know, you've got grids that, okay, nominally say it's 50 Hertz. It might be 55, 56 Hertz for a while. And then it's. 48 and then, you know, it kind of goes back and forth or the voltages might swing. You know, the, our, our legacy equipment is known for being able to handle those kinds of issues and being able to to either stay connected or reconnect quickly enough and for long enough to make a difference. It's, it's that sense of I'm going to have power no matter what, and I'm going to have the cheapest power. Interestingly, I mean, that's what we're kind of bringing back to the U.S. now as the U.S. grid is less and less stable because it's aging and different things are getting done to it. You know, the, the PSPS in California is a great example where, hey, we're just going to turn the grid off for a couple of days so that we don't start a wildfire. You know, you don't want to be someone that's having to live without power, especially right now during a shelter in place order of a pandemic, you know, and all this kind of stuff. We're already seeing, you know, that, that situation develop in uh, your neck of the woods with hurricane season, right? Uh, so people are really freaking out. And we're bringing that kind of power independence, which people in, in, in the U.S. and in Canada never really thought they needed before. You know, but this is all par for the course in Latin America, or in Africa, or in Australia, or a lot of the other places that that we've done business. And so it's 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 interesting that we're kind of bringing those those values you know here where no one thought they needed them. That's where you know I think we, we can bring a lot to the table because we do have so much experience working in those kinds of
0: environments. Super interesting. We talked about you know you you said that the focus of software and the chemistry is pretty well nailed down, but historically Outback has been used to couple. Predominantly lead lead acid batteries for off grid systems. As I look at the product offering on your energy storage page, there I don't see a, any you know a lot of diversification away from lead. Is there an argument in, in favor or of different chemistries, or how do you see that piece of the storage argument or conversation shaking out?
1: Um, so we are working on some lithium ion offerings, so that you'll see those before too long. But really, the the this idea that you know the the whole lead is dead idea, uh, I think is is misguided. There are applications where lithium ion makes more sense, and there are applications where lead acid makes more sense. So for example, if you're doing a a strict time of use or something like that, where you're going to be cycling the battery every day and you're otherwise on the grid and you don't have a lot of extremes, a lithium-ion battery is probably going to perform better in that situation. There are ways to do it with with lead carbon batteries uh, that are cheaper up front, but you know, honestly, if I do the math, a good low-cost lithium-ion battery is, is going to be better economically over the long term. On the flip side, if all you care about is standby, you know, which was most of the market until pretty recently, then lead-acid batteries are much better, and they'll even last longer. Uh, because a lead-acid battery, it likes to just sit there being fully charged and what we call in-float, for you know, so those are familiar with the terminology, which means you're, you're just giving it kind of a trickle charge at, a, at, a real, at its high voltage uh, over time takes a you know just a little bit of power so it's a little bit of parasitic there but it'll stay in that condition for you know 10 15 20 years depending on the battery whereas if you do that to a lithium ion battery and just leave it in float for even 3 years most batteries today you'll avoid the warranty and very few of them will will live much longer than that you know despite the fact that you paid twice as much for it you know it's about the right battery for the right application and and this is the approach that we take is even before you know the acquisition it's not about, you know, one chemistry versus another chemistry. It's about choosing the right chemistry for the right application, because there are there are so many little differences and little things here and there. Uh, you know, one of the things that came up in a, in a conversation with with some of our engineers over in Reading on the battery side was, you know, there's a whole debate right now around. Oh, well, you have, you know, these LFP batteries and, you know, they're safer or they're whatever because they don't have cobalt. And it's like, well, OK, the safer is more debatable, but No one's going to recycle a battery that doesn't have cobalt in it, which I had never heard that before. And I was like, wow, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, Because if you look at, say, the the lead acid battery space, lead acid batteries are almost completely recycled. It's one of the most recycled products on the face of the earth. And in fact, when you buy a lead acid battery, it's mostly recycled content. Uh, Everything from the lead to the plastic. Not so lithium ion today. There there are relatively few opportunities to recycle lithium ion batteries. And mostly they're around recapturing some of those uh, rare materials. Lithium by itself isn't such a valuable material; it's relatively common. But when you start having, you know, cobalt and, and titaniums and these other things that are in the chemistry, now it becomes much more financially interesting uh, to recycle them. And so there's a lot more uh, effort put into that. So you know, so so this you know this guy's prediction was that we're going to see much more advanced recycling for nickel manganese cobalt batteries before we'll see it for lithium iron phosphate. The conversation of the time was around well. We can make the NMC battery just as safe because you know even your even your LFPs will ha- will have thermal runaway if you don't design them properly and use them within spec. Uh, so you know we're having you know, these are the kinds of conversations we're having, and, and the, the advantage is that nobody's like, oh, it's it's my chemistry or die. It's like uh, you know we, we've got a whole building full of chemists. We'll figure that part out.
0: You know, one of the things I'm curious about, as there are a lot of battery startups in the world right now is where does Intersys think about strategic investment obviously have had a number of successful acquisitions including Alpha and Northstar but is there an internal skunk works at Intersys that looks at you know being a strategic and investing in some of these smaller battery companies that are out there trying to make it and that are that are creating their own hardware and software
1: um nothing i'm at liberty to talk about <laughs> uh, so I mean, obviously there's the the message to, to those of us in management is, you know, if you see something that makes a good acquisition, let's go talk about it. As far as there being a specific, you know, secretive group of people doing that, I can't say, but I do know that, you know, if if a good suggestion comes up from, you know, someone like on my team, for example, it'll get a hearing. And I think that's, that's important. Uh, And, you know, in, in, in any company that you're working with, you know, if you can't get ideas from any quarter to get a hearing, if they're good ideas, then, um, you know, then there's a problem.
0: One of the things you and I talked about a little bit offline, and just because it's pertinent to uh, where we're all at in the world right now, I'm curious to know what you see as things being affected broadly by the pandemic and the potential global recession, things that we discussed like public power safety shutoffs or public safety power shutoffs during the stay at home. Can you comment on kind of from your vantage point, what you see happening broadly in our industry as a result of the pandemic?
1: My take on it is, is as good or bad as anyone else's, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, we've obviously seen a bit of a downturn just as people are unable to go out and, and install stuff. I mean, our, our product depends on an infrastructure of contractors who are going in, into people's homes and installing equipment. Obviously, that's more difficult right now. The interesting counter trend to that is we're hearing about a lot more interest, right? So people are, are really thinking, you know, now that they're in their homes all the time for months on end... And thinking about these impending, you know, hurricane season, wildfire season, you know, everyone's got a, got a disaster season of some kind. People are thinking really hard about, hey, what happens if I don't have any power? It's not like I can go to the shelter because I'll get the plague if I go to the shelter. So what do we do? You know, and, and so it's interesting because I, I have a feeling that once, once areas start to open up, and I think we've seen some of this, you know, in the areas that have opened up uh, a little bit, you know, like in the southeast and so forth, there's a bit of an uptick. Where people are like, "Hey, I just realized I need this. I'm going to get it done now while I still can, because you never know when you know you know the, the economy could very well go into lockdown again if there's another round of uh, of infections, uh, which you know is as likely as not at this point. So you know people are are starting to think about it. There, there's a little bit of that ticking clock. You know the other thing working against this is you know if you're afraid for your job or your your source of income, whatever it happens to be, you know your your business, you're going to back off on those kinds of investments." You know, or at least you're going to think about it longer. So it's hard to say what the net effect is. I, th- I think in the end, you know, we're we're going to come out of this. So there'll be a little bump to make up for lost time. Uh, and then we'll be back largely on the trajectory we were on before, uh, if not a little bit better. That's uh, about as much as I can see in the future on that point at this point.
0: You know, Paul, you, uh, as I recall, come from an entrepreneurial family, yet you are very much an entrepreneur working within a larger system. I'd love to get your perspective on the difference that you see between you know being an entrepreneur starting your own company versus being an entrepreneur joining a large company with uh, you know the resources that come along with that.
1: Yeah, I, like I said, my you know my parents ran a, a delicatessen when I was when I was young. Didn't go particularly well. There were good years and bad years, but uh, it ultimately led to a lot of trouble. You know, it it sort of gave me a a real kind of warning about. Hey, if you're going on your own, you know, you've got to do these things. And as I went into my MBA program, it was a very entrepreneurial focused uh, program. We were uh, literally across the street from the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Uh, so it was it was a great program from that point of view. We we got to go you know, one of the summer projects was, you know, we, we went over across the street. We looked at several technologies. We picked one and, and wrote a plan to commercialize it. And then we took the plan around and did business plan competitions. And it was really interesting and a lot of fun. But as part of that program, you know, every week we were meeting different entrepreneurs. And you know, one of the themes that I picked up on, whether it was just because of my own bias or uh, or what have you, but it's like these are all people who either didn't have a family or or sacrificed their family uh to build their business. And you know, I just wasn't comfortable making that trade-off. Uh so you know. That was, a, I think, a big part of it that I should, you know, put out there as, you know, this is my bias and where I'm coming from. That said, I mean, if if I look at it today, I'm in a different place today. I probably could. But the kinds of things that I want to do, you know, I, I want to build, you know, power electronics, energy storage systems, things like that. It's not the kind of stuff that you can do on a shoestring, you know, so it's, it's really hard to be you know, the best you could do as a startup uh, in that space would be to get some engineers and then go have someone in China, like build all the stuff for you. I'm not a huge fan of, you know, talk, you know, referencing our earlier part of the conversation. I'm not a huge fan of doing that. And so I would much rather work with, you know, a U.S.-based company that has the resources. You know, I can, you know, in, in my current role, I can write up a requirements document and, and talk to customers, you know, make sure that, the, you know, I can design the, the product from a sort of features and benefits point of view. And I can hand that off to a very competent engineering team that can go and make it a reality. And then I can focus on, okay, what else am I going to need around this product? How am I going to launch it? And, and, and do all the sort of business stuff without having to, you know, at the same time worry about how I'm going to make payroll or worry about how I'm going to pay the taxes. Or, you know, it's a more, you know, the, the kind of specialization of labor. The trade-off is, you know, obviously I'm not in charge, right? So I can't go and make the rules. Uh, and, and you have to learn to work within the rules and the culture of of the company that you're in. But I have found, you know, everywhere I've been that there are opportunities to have a lot of influence, you know, if you can bring a good case, you know, if, if you're good at making your case and you can show how it's going to result in revenues, profits, and all the things that business leaders are looking for, or even just satisfied customers, you know, here's how we're going to make our customers this much more happy and improve their lives by doing X. You know, you can get a hearing and in most, you know, most well-run companies, you know the good ideas will will float to the surface, and uh, and they'll get executed. And you know, and if you find that that's not happening, uh, then that's a sign that you're probably not in the kind of company you should be in. And you know, granted that you know the situation we're in now is not ideal for for making those kinds of changes, but you know there are times when it's opportune to make those kinds of changes, and uh, and people people will do that. Uh, I, know, I you know I've done that a couple of times when when it became necessary. But yeah, I think I see myself as working for the industry and working for the customers our industry in particular. You know, how do I make people more energy independent? And I'm going to align with, you know, whatever company will help me do that.
0: Reflecting on that and, and seeing that you leveraged, which many, many of us do leverage the, the moment to kind of go back and get an MBA and get training skills to then take a new direction in career. What do you see were the main... and I'll I'll say this also within the context that I and, and many others, uh, despite the fact that I have an MBA, are I'm a naysayer on the value of, of higher education beyond a college degree unless there's a really, really specific application for it. So I'm really curious, from your perspective, having gone through the same process, what you see as the main benefits that you gleaned from your MBA as it pertains to your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an experience that you go through. But more than anything, you know, going after that MBA, it, it's... It builds up in you and it demonstrates a discipline that not everybody has. You know, so if if I'm hiring people, for example, you know, I expect to see a certain difference when I see an MBA on someone's resume versus someone that doesn't have one. And experience doesn't always make up for that. You know, sometimes it does. There are people like like I said, I mean, you know, Brad Bass is actually a great example. And I hope he doesn't mind me me using his name like this. But, you know, here's a guy who who doesn't have a technical degree. You know, he's, a, he's, he's not a degree engineer. But... I would trust his opinion over most degree engineers because he he's shown through the experience that he has that discipline, that he has that rigor. And an MBA is in is, any other you know, advanced degree is really, in essence, a shortcut to that judgment, right, is saying, you know, I have this discipline, I, I've done the work. So, you know, people that have these advanced degrees, you know, they're much more likely to have done the homework. And it's not universally true. Like nothing, nothing is universally true. You know, when you're when you're in the business and you're hiring people and you're and you're looking at. Experience and qualifications, you know, it's a decent signpost. Uh, you know, I found on, on the whole, people who have it are much more likely to have that discipline than people that don't. And I, I know that's the big thing I got out of it was just you know proving to myself that I could do this. Now, there's all, always, of course, the experience angle of you know you're on campus. You know, I got to like I said, met different entrepreneurs every week. You know, from guys at Boeing and and Hewlett Packard to the guy that sold ash from Mount St. Helens, you know, after the eruption, <laughs> uh, who was yep. the most fun, by the way, uh, you know, meeting those kinds of people and getting involved in those kinds of networks. Uh, you know, and, and again, people ask about, oh, what's the value of a big school? Uh, you know, I, I, I think there are some ways that the, the big school education is better. But the real advantage is that they come out with these networks. And, you know, the the, the Stanford, Harvard, Yale type of networks are really, really powerful. You know, and I, I kind of wish I had uh, more access to that. But that's the value of, of the schooling. And I think it's possible to see without it, but it's it's a lot harder.
0: Your anecdote about Brad also reminds me of uh, another guest I've had on the show and friend of mine, Tristan uh, over at PVEL, who you has know, run the PV module business for DMVL, DMVGL, now PVEL. And he's a non-technical business leader who commands great respect in the market. You know, he worked at he worked at Silfab as a quality manager with no um, prior engineering experience, leading a team of quality engineers. So I can definitely identify with exactly what you're pointing to there for for you know, the the innate ability that some folks have, and that others sort of skip to the front of the line, as you said, in a shortcut with the MBA to get that get that credibility on the on the business side. You know, one of the other things that I find that has been hugely valuable for me going through the MBA process and the various jobs that I've had um, after that. Is that of having mentors in my life. And I wonder what are some key, you know, you work for David Katz, for God's sake, of, of, you know, so many people in your life that you've been influenced by. What are some key lessons or takeaways that you have from some of these important leaders and mentors in your career?
1: I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, um, you know, David and Raju and others, you know, taught me directly. I think I, you know, I I learned most of what I know about the solar market and how it all works, uh, you know, from, from Raju and just, you know, conversations that we would have. And, and he, and, you know, he's a really great guy because he's just, he, he's argumentative, but in in a, in a more of a lighthearted way, you know, so if, if you really want to work through an issue, you know, he's a great person to, to talk to about it because he'll, he'll kind of poke and prod and, well, have you thought about this and what about that? And, um, and just enjoys that kind of conversation, which really helped me to learn, you know, plus he introduced me to a lot of folks, you know, including David and, and Coley and, and those guys, because, you know, he was he's been their supplier for all these years. Right. And then, you know, and then, and then with someone like David Katz. It's like you kind of you, you learn more by just watching him and some of the things that we were, you know, he, he was the guy before I got there. I mean, he was kind of managing the product assortment. And so hiring me was sort of how he got to, you know, free up his time to go do other stuff. Uh, which, which I think suited, suited him fine. But yeah, we used to have a fair number of conversations around like what kind of product should we focus on? And what are the trends? I mean, so he, he's one, he's the one that really helped me spot early on this trend toward storage uh, the trend toward, you know, uh, microelectronics on, on, on PV modules. He had actually theorized an AC battery back in like, you know, 1980 something, you know, so we have all these just crazy things that, you know, cause here's a guy who's electrical engineer worked for the air force Right before he got into uh, to solar, and you know, for those of the that have met him, like would not picture him as a as a civilian Air Force employee. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but you know, then looking at kind of what happened with these guys and, and what what directions their careers took or their businesses took, you know, different people are good at different things. You know, like I said, Raju was great at sort of running a, a business and and strategizing and making sure that everything was was set up correctly and very loyal. I mean, like I said, he he worked at that factory through you know, three, four different owners and, um, you know, never really complained, just did the job and made sure everything was, was working as well as it could, you know, so he did okay. And then you look at someone like David Katz, who, you know, made most of his money buying and selling, you know, companies and and just being at the right place at the right time and kind of orchestrating these, uh, these very innovative deals and technologies, but not an operations guy. Like I, you know, I love David to death. I would, I would never put him in charge of, of, managing the company on a day-to-day basis, because that's just not his skill set, right? You know, there are other people that, that are good at that. So you get someone like Raju to do that. And you get someone like David to be like the visionary and the like, go figure out how to do this. And just realizing from, you know, all these kinds of folks that not everybody can be good at everything. You know, you, you've you got to figure out what your strengths are and play to your strengths. And uh, I think that was an important lesson for me. I've I've gone through my career as, as much of a generalist as you can, trying to be fairly good at everything. And I think it's helped me back in some ways that, You know, I haven't kind of played to uh, very particular strengths, but I have found that, you know, in in part from talking to these guys, you know, when I play to my strengths, I do really, really well. And I think that that's true for most people. You know, you you have to figure out what you're good at and and you're not going to figure that out by introspection alone. You've got to talk to people and 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 get feedback. Uh, Otherwise, you're 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 going to end up thinking you're good at good at something that you're not or vice versa. That part of it. I mean, that was the big takeaway for me is, you know, and we tend to we tend to lionize a lot of people in the industry. Uh, you know, particularly the pioneers and stuff, and you know, having gotten to know them, you're like, you know, yeah, they they deserve a lot of credit for what they did and the and the chances they took and the and the things that they stood for. But these are you know these are imperfect people, just like every other imperfect person. You know, and there's no reason why anybody else can't go and do something on the order of what they did. Uh, so you know, that's encouraging too. And I think I, I see it a lot in, in our industry in particular. You know, just the sense of oh, you know, so and so's you know, the Messiah and we'll never, you know, be as good as that. The reality is, you know, no, they're not. <laughs> um, they're very focused. And, and, and you find when you talk to them, that like, what they had to pay in terms of time, treasure and talent to, to get where they are and to do what they did. And I've always been most impressed by the people. I mean, a good example is, is just these who I met, you know, he was at AE while I was at solo world. And then he had left AE about the time that I joined but, you know, he's been a good friend of mine and, and we work together on a lot of regulatory stuff I mean, things that basically you would you would look at what Jeff and what he does. And be like, what does this have to do with with your business and, and building up your career? And, you know, and I think the answer, honestly, is is nothing. I want to I want to see the industry built up. You know, so I, I always had a lot more respect for people like that who say, look, I'm here to accomplish something. And when I interview people, you know, that's one of the questions that I, I typically ask for early on is like, tell me what you want to accomplish. Like, I don't care about where you want to be in five years. I want to I know what you want to have accomplished in five years. Like, what did, you, what did you do for the industry? What did you do for the company? What did you do for the world? And the people that can answer those kinds of questions coherently are typically much more interesting.
0: Hmm. I really appreciate that, uh, that reflection. And certainly that question, I think it's one that we should all ask ourselves, what do we want to accomplish in the next three to five years? Uh, we have a terrible ability to predict what's going to happen over the next year. And we often overstate, uh, what we can accomplish in you know three to six months and and vastly understate what we can accomplish in three to 10 years. You know, I've had that same experience with Jeff. I just find Jeff uh, extremely interested in raising the tide, not necessarily elevating the level of his boat. It's a fascinating, uh, always a fascinating conversation when I get to hang out with Jeff and, and so many uh, who are like him, which really constitute the ethos of our industry by and large. And certainly those of us who've been in the industry long enough to have con- considered it, a career, rather than uh, those who are um, kind of looking at it as the the new uh, hot market or the new new next best thing. Yeah, I really appreciate that reflection. That caused uh, it caused a flood of memories for me of things that uh, I've similarly encountered in my career. I'm curious, uh, Paul, uh, as we start to turn towards home base here. What's got you most excited about where clean energy, as an industry, is going?
1: We are either at or really quickly approaching the you know that sort of tipping point right where the things that we've been doing for the last you know twenty years or so and, and longer in, in, in some cases are becoming more and more common sense like well you know if you ask most people on the street today well of course we should have more solar energy <laughs> yeah energy storage sounds like a great idea we should do, we should do more of that yeah I like the idea of, of having control over my own energy supply and and how I interact with the utility you know I, I think the tide of consumer opinion is on our side. I wrote another article recently talking about how, you know, one of the more important things we've, we've seen is, you know, the codes and standards and regulations are establishing, you know, now to say, Hey, look, you know, an energy storage system is part of the home building code. You know, it doesn't necessarily say that you have to have one, but at least it prescribes if you're going to have it, it's like an air conditioner, you know, if you're going to have it, do it like this. That's actually a really, really good thing because it means that that people on a broad sense want this. And we want to like have a formulaic way for them to get it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm excited about that kind of stuff.
0: I'm going to definitely link to that article, by the way, where you point out the the three signs that batteries, energy storage in particular is mainstream. I think that um, the, your writing style in particular, I really appreciate.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I work hard on it. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm excited. About. I mean, this is finally it's something that's been so niche for so long. I mean, for the first, you know, 10, 15 years of my career, I couldn't ex- I, I could try to explain to my, you know, my mother or my grandmother, like what I'm doing, but they didn't get it like, oh, OK, solar panels. That's cool. You know, whatever. And I think we're, we're approaching the time when, you know, people like them that 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 aren't into this stuff, that aren't energy wonks can at least look at it and say, oh, you make those things. Oh, yeah. OK, I understand. You know, <laughs> maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But they've at least seen it and, and they know that, that it fits over here. So, you know, getting, you know, getting a box is not necessarily the end of the world. It's uh, it's the beginning of something bigger in some cases.
0: I wonder, uh, Paul, as you reflect on the way that you internalize information, I'm curious if you default to books or podcasts, how do you inform yourself?
1: I mean, I read a lot of books. I haven't as much in the last couple of years. You know, I try to read, you know, business book every, every month or two. I've increasingly gone to audiobooks and podcasts. Podcasts are, are, have been big for me. I went to a work-from-home arrangement a little over a year ago and so I have less time on commute. But I'll I'll listen to, you know, your podcast, for example, or uh, or energy gang or some other ones, you know, when I'm, you know, working in my shop or whether I'm, you know, just kind of sitting around having breakfast or something, you know, in, in sort of the down times where otherwise I'm just sort of doing something with my hands that's sort of mindless. Uh it helps to have some learning going on at the same time, you know, A, so I don't get bored and B because it's edifying. Uh and I've I've gotten a lot out of podcasts and uh and I think that's kind of what got me into audiobooks was just like hey i'm I'm kind of getting used to now absorbing this information by listening i've I'd always been before more of a visual learner, and I found that I just don't have the time to to sit and read anymore uh, like I used to, and this gives me a way to to do that while I'm taking care of other things that I you know otherwise i wouldn't have time to do it.
0: It's categorically why I listen to audiobooks and podcasts, mostly because I'm a runner. And I also chronically am up washing dishes or cleaning the house around, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And so it's easy to just pop that in and go about your, (laughs) go about your, your, your chores, you know, or your exercise. I have a question that I've been asking folks offline. I don't think I've ever asked this online, um, or like on an interview. What do you look for? You know, given that everyone who's listening to this right now clicked the link and started listening because something appealed to them. What do you look for as a podcast listener that makes you say, oh, I'll listen to that episode?
1: It depends. I mean, so if it's if it's a podcast I'm not familiar with, you know, then I'll look for what's the subject matter and, you know, who's being interviewed and, and you know, where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. In most cases, I tend to stick with uh, particular credible sources. So like your podcast, for example, or say mm-hmm. Energy Gang or interchange or one of those mm. um but
0: then how do you decide what episode to listen to if like i've got 260 episodes when, when someone yeah i
1: haven't i haven't gone to none of your back catalog I, <laughs> I have to confess um i've done that on a couple of other podcasts that weren't weren't uh, solar related in your i mean in your case i listen to most of yours if i don't listen to it it's usually because it's either someone whose story i already know pretty well mm. and that's that you know it doesn't really isn't terribly relevant to me for for other reasons but you know by and large i like the you know this interview approach and the kind of question and answer. I'm not a huge fan of podcasts with just one voice. Um, uh-huh. the, the only the only exception to that would be Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know I, I like the conversational format. I like the uh, my, my favorite is you know podcasts where you have two people who are disagreeing. You know maybe like a moderated discussion or something. I find those really compelling because it it really. Regardless of the of the content, I anyone mean, my all time favorite is uh, is actually a British uh, Christian radio show where they have people arguing about religion, and I really enjoy it because it the points that they make in the end, these are typically very educated people who you know know their topics and are very cordial, and so they're just discussing their differences and making points and counterpoints, and you're learning how to how to think and how to absorb this information and how how to spot faulty claims. You know just sort of what's the, the the art of argumentation as it were. And so to, to me those kinds of things are really interesting. And it helps you really dig through a topic and and sort out the all the different sides. And regardless of, of who you know who won the conversation, because you know, you might have somebody who's more rhetorically skilled than someone else and they may sound like you know they had the better hand of the conversation, but when you go back and and think about it. It's like, well, they missed this point, this point, and this point just because their interlocutor wasn't up to the same level. Eventually, you learn to kind of spot these things and, and to see where, you know, there's maybe a fallacy uh, in their argument or uh, something like that. So I, I find any kind of podcast that makes me think and that helps me learn how to think better, regardless of, of the, the topic. Uh, I find really valuable.
0: You know, you mentioned that you have read in, a lot in the past. Is there a book in particular that you gift a lot or that you recommend to folks that uh, you find helps inform inform your worldview or your leadership style or has influenced you and pushed you in some way?
1: You know, there's there's a number of them that I like. Um, I mean, lately, I've, I've been recommending to people in my organization, uh, Who, which is a book on, on how to hire. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. Uh-huh. But if you just look up the, the Who book, you'll you'll find it. One that I recommend to a lot of people who are Uh, you know, especially in the entrepreneurial world is an old one called uh, the E-Myth by Michael Gerber.
0: Of course. Yeah.
1: And this is, you know, this is one that I read early on and and it it really made the point for me that, you know, if you're going to build a business, you have to build a business, not a job. Mm. And, uh, and the book does a great job. I mean, you can read it in an afternoon. It's a really short book, but it tells you the difference between building a business and owning a job. You know, if I, if I decide to hang a shingle tomorrow and be a consultant, I would own a job,
0: yeah. right? And maybe
1: that's okay. You know, if, if that's what you want to do, nothing wrong with it, but that's not building a business, right? That's owning a job. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, going and building something or building out a service organization where you have, you know, people that work for you and, and his, his litmus was, can you franchise it?
0: Ah, wow. I didn't realize which I, that was.
1: Yeah. Which I thought was, was really brilliant take on it. And that was how, you know, talking about the business plan competition, uh, that I did during my MBA program. I had read this book around that time. It gave me the idea to franchise, you know, the business model we came up with was a franchised home inspection system built around a technology that could see through walls. And so, you know, because that was the technology we were looking at. It's the same, the same, by the way, you go to the airport and you, you do the scanner, you know, if not the x-ray or not the uh, the metal detector, but you have to go through the scanner. Uh, it's that technology. They invented that there at the laboratory and they wanted to apply it to other markets. And so uh, the market we we picked was was, you know, kind of building inspection. And uh, and that was how we decided to do it was a, as a franchise. We basically sell the tools on a kind of, you know, franchise basis where you'd pay so much a month to have the tools and then go out and, and uh, we figured we could proliferate it a lot faster that way.
0: The book, by the way, is The Who, The A Method for Hiring by Jeff Smart and Randy Street. And of course, we link to all of these in our, in our show notes at mysuncast.com. Do you ever check that out? I mean, I recommend tons of books.
1: Yeah, I, I find I've read probably 30 to 40% of them.
0: Ah, fantastic. Yeah, Um,
1: I I, I pick up pick up a few more wherever I can. I I read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow recently, which was which was a really interesting one.
0: Is there a particular uh, habit or consistent practice that for you gives you uh, an area of focus or impact in your life that you wouldn't otherwise get? I I think
1: about your purpose. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do on a day to day basis that help you get better at stuff, you know, like listening to podcasts, as we've talked about. But none of that's going to help you if you don't know what you want to accomplish. So I, I think, you know, and I find, you know, the annual vacation is a great time to do this to kind of sit down, you, you know, block out at least a day and just kind of very relaxed, casually, you know, sit down and go, OK, what have I what have I finished? Like, what, what have I accomplished? And then what's next? And if you think about what you, you know, like I, said, I I try to focus on what do you want to accomplish in the next you know year, three, five years? And knowing what that is helps you align everything else that you're doing. You know, am I in the right role for that? Am I at the right company for that? Uh, am I building the right skills for that? Uh, and so on. And so, uh, you know, for, for me, it's about just identifying, you know, what's that next thing going to be, you know, for, for me, it's, you know, I want to see energy storage become absolutely ubiquitous. Right. And so, you know, I, I try to think about what's the next thing that I can do. Right. So, so for now, until I get it done, it's, you know, get the right product out on the market. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping to be able to say, and, In the next year or so that that i've done that and then it's going to be how do i you know build on that and make that product more popular and what do i follow it up with you know how do i build an ecosystem for all this to work better
0: that's very inspiring i like that and yeah you you mentioned doing it uh on the annual vacation uh my question was particularly is there anything that is a habit so something you do every day but my my assumption underlying it is that this is something that in fact is a core driver for you? It's something that you think about on a regular basis, if not daily, then certainly weekly. Um, am I am I driving towards my accomplishment? So I think that uh, that is a, a real clarity, and I find that unfortunately it's one that far too few people have in their career in their life.
1: It's it's easy to get caught up in the noise, yeah. And, and I think especially in in our society, and that's one that's one of maybe the silver linings of you know of this whole situation we're in these days is it's forcing a lot of people to, to stop and think about Isn't well, what am one? I really doing here? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it really is. That's a very good point. Paul, you have been published a couple of times now lately in uh, PB Magazine. Uh, Where else can people find you, your writing, your thinking? Are you proliferated on Twitter or LinkedIn? Or is it best for them to just kind of find you on LinkedIn and message you? or How how can folks get more of Paul Daly?
1: Um, Well, I'm not on Twitter, and that's very intentional. I I philosophically disagree with the idea that you can have meaningful conversations in 250 characters. But um I try to post everything that I publish on my LinkedIn page just so that it's easy, you know, one one stop shop to go and find all of that. Uh so you can usually find any of that there. Uh, of course the Outback uh Outbackpower.com uh blog, you'll find some of that stuff there.
0: Well that's end today, Paul, after what has been a really phenomenal conversation. I've enjoyed uh immensely with what we call a bold prediction your listeners so you know what's coming. What one thing do you see happening Paul in uh, our market or in markets to come that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: Um well we covered 10 of them earlier.
0: <coughs> yes we did. So,
1: but I think I mean as a whole I I really do see you know energy storage becoming if nothing less a necessary component for PV and I think we'll see both become nearly ubiquitous by the end of the decade.
0: Fantastic. I will certainly be tracking that here on Suncast, and we'll be bringing you back in to talk a little bit more uh, later in the year when some of these uh, world-changing products that you're working on come to market. Paula Daly is the Director of Product and Market Strategy for Outback Power, a subsidiary of Inersys, global giant uh, for storage solutions. Paul, thanks so much for coming back on Suncast. look forward to seeing you soon, friend.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: Well, well, what a truly inspiring story. I love having conversations with guys like Paul who have really been around the block. They've had a chance to navigate the ins and outs of our industry and have successfully taken steps to increasing their responsibility and purview in the industry. And I'm so grateful to know you, Paul. Thank you for being on the show. Well, I hope that you're more prepared than ever to take the energy transition on with renewed vigor, strength, and insight. It's great to have a podcaster like Paul in the virtual studio with me today and take that walk down memory lane, which I'm sure has stirred up fond emotions and sparked new ideas for you all. But did it resonate with you? How about let me know over on LinkedIn? I love reading your takeaways when you share them, as some of you are prone to do. You share them with me and your community. You're so giving, and I love that. I'll be sure to jump in, as always, with a like and a comment, and I hope that you'll do the same. Now, if you're eager to keep learning, then as always, my fellow philomath, I invite you to check out the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion over on mysuncast.com. There you'll find the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more from these dialogues with the titans of industry. And hey, while you're there, as I mentioned earlier, it really does give me great insight and joy to read your answers to our listener survey. Would you take a few more minutes at mysuncast.com and fill out that survey so that we have a better understanding of how we can serve you? And lastly, if you're new to the industry or just looking for ways to network more, I would encourage you to look no further than our Clean Energy Guild over on Facebook. I know some of you aren't even using Facebook, so why not just bookmark the Clean Energy Guild and make that the only networking option you have outside of LinkedIn? (laughs) That's basically what I do. It's a network where Myself and hundreds of other clean energy professionals are networking and communicating all about what's happening in the industry. We also have exclusive live trainings, mentorship, and guild-only guides. We're putting stuff in there just about every week now, so I hope you'll jump over and check it out and get your latest guide on all the fancy tools I use to maximize my output and minimize my inputs. Remember, you are what you listen to, Solar Warrior. So thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.